So in the first episode, I think I made y'all uncomfortable with hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergency. And there's different levels of discomfort. This kind of discomfort can be quite anxiety provoking since lives can be on the line. And so, you know, it's kind of like if you show up to a parent teacher conference with pornography on your t-shirt and smelling like beer, you're going to be uncomfortable, but at least there's not somebody's life on the line. So I was looking at the New England Journal of Medicine article from November 7th of 2019. It's titled Acute Severe Hypertension. And I think it's fair to say that the New England Journal of Medicine is as wishy-washy as me on this. So when they say when it comes to choice of treatment, I'll just quote them. They say, there are relatively few trials comparing different agents for hypertensive emergency and hypertensive urgency. Treatment is largely determined by an understanding of the pathophysiological features, the presence and type of target organ injury, the availability and costs of medications, and physician experience with given agents. There is considerable variability in practice regarding the choice of medications. So I think it's fair to say that what I'm telling you, one, can change, two, may not be totally accurate for the clinical scenario that you're taking care of, and you're going to have to consider a lot of things when managing these patients. And nothing I say from here on out is gospel. It's based on my experiences and then reading a lot about this over the years and some recent articles about it. But I think there are some things there is consensus on and that we can all agree on. So for example, if we do agree it is truly a hypertensive emergency, again, as per the first episode, that's very difficult to determine sometimes. But if it's for sure one, then those patients should be in an intensive care unit and intravenous antihypertensive medications should be used. If we do think that it's more of a hypertensive urgency issue, the current thought process, right now is early 2020, so I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but right now, as of April 2020, the current thought process in the management of hypertensive urgency, again, not talking about emergency, so we're not in the intensive care unit right now, is to lower the blood pressure by no more than 25% within the first hour, and then to lower it to less than 160 over 100 over the next two to six hours, and then cautiously try and target a lower blood pressure over the next 24 to 48 hours. Now, of course, you don't know how that patient is going to react to the antihypertensive you're about to give. And I'm not even sure from an evidence-based medicine standpoint that that's great advice to give what I just said, meaning that that could change in a few years or in a decade or whenever. And then I think you have to use the usual thought process of what you do in hypertension based on certain groups and ethnicities. So women of childbearing age try and avoid ACE inhibitors because of developmental abnormalities that can happen with them. In black patients, often a thiazide diuretic or a calcium channel blocker, great first option. But again, those options are more for long-term treatment and if you truly do need to bring things down fast with an oral medication, I find something like clonidine to be very effective. So oftentimes I will give a single dose of clonidine and then follow that by a more appropriate long-term antihypertensive as I don't love clonidine as a first-line agent as I assume most of you don't. 
and I assume most of you don't because it's a BID drug, which means one, there's gonna be more non-compliance, and two, we said in the first episode that the biggest reason for a hypertensive urgency or emergency is non-compliance, and then there's of course the rebound hypertension with clonidine. Meaning, if you abruptly stop clonidine, you can get higher blood pressures than you ever had. If the patient is a diabetic, race does become a factor. So right now in black patients with diabetes, a thiazide direct or calcium channel blocker is still recommended as initial therapy. Whereas first line therapy in non-black patients with diabetes, it can be a thiazide or a calcium channel blocker, but obviously ACE inhibitors and ARBs are reasonable choices and a preference among many physicians. And ACE inhibitors and ARBs in non-black patients are particularly liked when there is albuminuria present in diabetes. But some of these special population things aside, I gotta say that my go-to for the long-term in most patients with hypertension is Norvasc, or I should be saying amlodipine as a generic, and that's because I find that there's not a whole lot of side effects. Yes, you can get dose-dependent edema, and sometimes you have to stop it, but as far as not causing hyponatremia, such as you get with uh, thiazide diuretics or heart rate slowing issues with other types of calcium channel blockers, angioedema with ACE inhibitors, and we can go down the line, but there's a lot of problems with a lot of antihypertensives, and I guess I shouldn't say that peripheral edema is the only problem with amlodipine. Obviously, it's not the only problem, but it does occur in about 10% of patients at a 10 milligram dose. But you can obviously get vasodilatory effects and dizziness and palpitations and flushing. And then one we often don't think about with amlodipine, which is gingival overgrowth. And while I'm getting tangential on this topic, it is also worth remembering that if you do get dose-dependent edema with amlodipine, yes, sometimes we just add diuretics, but actually, if you also add either an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin 2 receptor blocker, then sometimes that deals with the edema of amlodipine. I realize I'm getting pretty off the topic of hypertensive urgency and emergency here, but that's what happens when any internist talks about hypertension. And the point being is that so many patients end up needing more than one antihypertensive, so you do have to sometimes think about combination therapy. And another point I probably glossed over too quickly, but really would like to make and try and teach my residents and even coworkers about, which is if you can use an oral antihypertensive, meaning you're not in a hypertensive emergency, why wouldn't that be the first line? Like, why would you go to intravenous drugs like hydralazine or labetalol on the floor if you really are not in a very serious situation? Well, the obvious answer is sometimes that people are MPO. And I think that's major reason why on order sets and admission orders when PRN antihypertensives are written, that they more often than not are written as IV instead of oral because we just don't know what the case is going to be in a day or two. Are they going to need surgery or endoscopy or a stress test or a million reasons that people can be MPO. But if you're being called and you know the patient's not MPO, then why not give an oral medication? And likewise, on the initial order sets, why not have both options available to the nurses? Also, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, so I know some of you right now are screaming at your headphones or however you're listening to this and saying, 
all-hat trial. It's the all-hat trial. Thiazide-type diuretics are superior in preventing cardiovascular disease and are less expensive. So I know some of you are flipping out about my amlodipine advice and all that, and I get it. And I, I do think there's true, honest debate that can happen. I do think there's a lot of ways to look at the literature. I think a big piece of this is that I am influenced as a hospitalist, so how many times do I see severe hyponatremia from thiazides versus severe problems from amlodipine. We're probably just coming at it from different viewpoints. But okay, so moving back maybe to something that we can all agree on, and that's that in hypertensive emergencies where we're starting to see significant end organ damage, we pretty much all, I think, are in agreement that we have to be in the intensive care unit, and that's probably best to start with an intravenous antihypertensive. Now, the one to pick is always the challenge. And then the other challenge is how fast do you lower blood pressure in those situations. So actually, what I said with hypertensive urgency is also the thought process in most, I'm going to say most because this is not true for everything. In most hypertensive emergencies, we often recommend, or at least the guidelines recommend, to decrease the blood pressure by about 20 to 25% during the first hour. Again, then trying to move to 160 over 100 during the next two to six hours. And maybe the biggest important point is not trying to go way far in the other direction. I mean, if you drop that systolic blood pressure below 120 or below 100, you can have bad outcomes. So for example, let's say you're treating hypertensive heart failure, like acute pulmonary edema. There's an article from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2011. It's titled, Hypertensive Heart Failure, Patient Characteristics, Treatments, and Outcomes. And they warn that blood pressure decreases lower than 120 within the first 12 hours were associated with an increased rate of the composite adverse outcomes that they were looking for. So you may be patting yourself on the back. Wow, I got the systolic blood pressure to 115 and that looks great. But actually that's associated with increased outcomes in that clinical scenario. Now, obviously there's a lot of things that we put people in the intensive care unit with severe hypertension and hypertensive emergencies. Stroke, of course, coming to most of your minds that we're not usually immediately wanting to lower blood pressure, meaning there's a permissive hypertension. But then there's the other side of stroke where if we're going to be giving TPA, right now we're trying to decrease the blood pressure less than 185 over 110 before we give the thrombolytics. And so it's very complex. You know, even in heart failure, there are some that recommend decreasing the blood pressure to less than 140 within the first hour. When I talk about 140, I'm talking about systolic blood pressure, of course. Yet at the same time, not trying to get it below 120 systolic within the first 12 hours. So that may be all the more reason why we want to use drips in these cases and why you need to be in the intensive care unit. Because even with the drips, it's hard to achieve perfection in the way I just described. Now, I will also say there are clinical scenarios. So for example, aortic dissection, where you do want to decrease that blood pressure really quickly. So it'd be very reasonable, in my opinion, and there are a lot of experts that agree with this, to decrease both the systolic blood pressure to less than 120 and decrease the heart rate to less than 60 beats per minute within 20 minutes. 
So not all hypertensive emergencies are the same. So for aortic dissection, where I want to do that really quickly, trying to get things done in less than 20 minutes, if they're not already bradycardic, I'm going to start with something like esmolol, and then I'm going to add on something like either nicardipine or nitroprusside or nitroglycerin. So basically, in aortic dissection, you're starting with a beta blocker. You know, esmolol is a selective beta-1 blocker and then you're adding a vasodilator, often very quickly if the esmolol is not working to your satisfaction. Now let's contrast that with an acute hypertensive emergency with acute heart failure like we were just talking about before. And in that case, the recommendation is to avoid beta blockers. So that's where you're going with, well, one, you're definitely going to go with a loop diuretic, right? Because you're in flash pulmonary edema, so you're going to give IV Lasix or an IV diuretic of some sort. And what can that vasodilator be? Well, could be something like nitroglycerin. So nitroglycerin is actually a mixed venous and arterial dilator, but mostly venous in effect. Or it can be something like nitroprusside, which is a direct vasodilator, mostly with an arteriolar effect. And in heart failure, you also want to avoid labetalol because it's both a non-selective beta blocker and an alpha-1 blocker, but it's much more of a beta blocker to an alpha blocker, meaning the ratio of beta blockades about 7 to 1 beta to alpha blocking ratio. So I think it's fair to look at labetalol as basically a beta blocker. Now, as I pause for a second, you know, I'm not sure that I even was honest in the beginning. Sometimes that happens because, let's face it, the only true honest people are drunk people, children, and leggings. But I said that hypertensive emergencies should always be in the ICU. And now that I'm talking about heart failure and pulmonary edema, I'm trying to remember the last time I moved someone to the ICU for that. And there's a few reasons for that. One, usually we can get people out of that pretty quickly on the floor. So I often do not need to use drips, meaning I give 120 of IV Lasix, slam it into them, maybe some nitro paste on the chest, and we're out of the situation pretty quickly. And so what I'm saying is that in flash pulmonary edema, we usually have to act very quickly, and moving someone to the ICU, maybe on your best day, might take 15 minutes, but gotta be honest, that's really pretty fast outside of a code blue situation. And so unlike other antihypertensive emergencies, meaning we're not going to get out of an acute situation in acute intracerebral hemorrhage, we're not going to get out of an acute situation in aortic dissection, or even really an acute coronary syndrome, or hypertensive encephalopathy. So heart failure might be that one exception that, at least off the top of my head, where i got to be honest, I rarely put that in the ICU. To me, that's more of a rapid response where I'm sitting at the bedside, standing really, but at the bedside with the nurse, with the patient. I'm not going to leave until I think we're in a much better situation, the rails are better, the oxygenation and dyspnea is improved. And even though the guidelines do say you should go to the intensive care unit in that hypertensive emergency, I'm just being honest, and I'm not always, because, listen, if I have a friend with an ugly baby, it's not like I'm telling them their baby's ugly, but in this situation, I just, I can't really recall the last time I moved somebody for flash pulmonary edema to the ICU. I think maybe the scenario where I have done that in the past is probably in a dialysis patient where I'm not going to make much headway, but even then, 
you're more urgently trying to get in touch with a nephrologist and get dialysis going no matter what the setting, whether it's in the ICU or the dialysis center, whatever floor your dialysis center is on. But short of that, if they can make urine and if they have access, then I'm going to be doing this on the floor. And if they don't have access, I'm probably going to be placing a central line at the bedside on the floor. And likewise, be thinking of alternative options. I mean, furosemide, Lasix, can be given intramuscularly. Of course, you can give nitro paste on the skin and also try some oral medications. So it feels like, to me, acute heart failure with hypertensive emergency still have a lot of options. But again, the point being is in most hypertensive emergencies, you do need the intensive care unit. All right, that all being said, still a lot more to cover, I think, on this topic. Probably could go on forever, but should come back for at least one more episode. So I will catch you on the next round. This is Dr. Gil Pratt. Have a great day.